The first time I heard Tina Turner's voice was on the radio in 1999. Her last hit single, the dance pop track, When the Heartache is Over, was all over the top 40, and I remember thinking, no other woman on the radio sounds like this. The fire and grit in her voice was unlike anything I'd heard in pop. The general idea was Black women were oversexed and overly sexual, and we, we don't want to see that on our TV screen. So if you want to be on television, you need to pull it back. She was breaking rules in the late 60s about the presentation of Black womanhood on stage. That was Maureen Mann, author of the book Black Diamond Queens, African-American Women and Rock and Roll. In this episode, I'll speak with Mann and Nkeki Obi-Malekwe, who currently stars as Tina in the Broadway musical adaptation of her life, about the enduring pull and gender-shattering rebellion of Turner's generation-spanning work. Before we start, please note that this episode contains mentions of domestic violence and sexual and emotional abuse. I'm Sasha Geffen, a music critic, journalist, and author of the book Glitter Up the Dark, How Pop Music Broke the Binary. This is Shattering Gleam, a podcast on music, gender, and the place where they collide. Tina Turner's voice electrifies the course of popular music. Beginning in the late 1950s, her performance style helped lay the foundation for rock and roll as it became an unstoppable cultural force on both sides of the Atlantic. The grit and nerve in her voice, as well as her animated, captivating live presence, dove between and beyond gender and race lines. Turner was a powerfully androgynous singer and performer who declined to conform to respectable ideals of Black femininity. In her refusal, she helped set the stage for similarly androgynous rock stars like Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones, who based a good amount of his own stage persona on Turner's. Tina Turner first became known as the lead singer of the Ike and Tina Turner Review. Their single, A Fool in Love, was a hit in 1960, gaining crossover appeal in a radio landscape that was largely segregated by race. Throughout the 60s, the Ike and Tina Turner Review issued a stream of popular R&B singles, and gained a reputation as a captivating live act. Performing alongside her backing singers and dancers, the Iquettes, Tina led the group to broad acclaim with her singular voice. In 1976, after nearly two decades performing together, Tina left her husband, Ike. She later told a reporter from People magazine that she had survived horrific physical, emotional, and sexual abuse while married to him. After freeing herself from her marriage, Turner faced the difficult task of reigniting a solo career and continuing to work as a musician. By the late 70s, the white male performers she had influenced held far more sway over the record industry than she did. After releasing a few solo albums to tepid response in the 70s, she put out a wildly successful comeback album in 1984 called Private Dancer, which included the massive hit What's Love Got To Do With It. This album and its follow-ups helped her reclaim her place in rock history, something that was not supposed to be possible for a Black woman in her 40s in a culture that privileged whiteness, maleness, and youth. Ultimately, her star-making solo career earned her the moniker, the Queen of Rock and Roll. Tina Turner's story has been told a few different ways over the decades. In 1986, she released her autobiography, I, Tina, 
co-written by music critic Kurt Loder. In 1993, the movie What's Love Got to Do With It fictionalized her story, starring Angela Bassett as Tina and Lawrence Fishburne as Ike, earning them both Oscar nominations. The Broadway musical Tina has been giving her story the stage since 2019, and in 2021, an HBO documentary, also called Tina, followed her life and career from its beginnings to the present day. Despite all the odds working against her, Turner's life and work continue to have an enduring intergenerational appeal. With me today to talk about the rock and roll ascendancy of Tina Turner is Maureen Mann, author of Black Diamond Queens, African-American Women and Rock and Roll. Maureen, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks so much for having me, Sasha. Also here to speak about Tina Turner is Nkeki Obimulekwe, who stars as Tina Turner in the award-winning Broadway musical Tina. Nkeki, thank you for being on the show. Thank you, Sasha. Maureen, what do you remember about the very first time that you heard Tina Turner? The first thing I remember is being really surprised and a little nervous. I was about five years old and I was probably seeing her on some televised performance of Proud Mary, which was a big hit back in 1970 or 71. And I was overwhelmed by her because at that time, what you saw on television as far as African-American performers tended to be much more subdued tended to be much more a presentation of a kind of respectability that would be comfortable for all audiences, not just African-American audiences. So I was a a Black kid growing up in the suburbs and was more used to seeing groups like the Supremes, you know, the Motown groups or the Jackson Five or Sly and the Family Stone, who were kind of freaky. But Tina Turner was letting it all hang out in a way that was really new and a little bit unsettling. It sounded like she was screaming, she was sweating. There was all of this energy and power. And I was, I didn't know what to do with Tina Turner. Wow. Was there any kind of like follow-up later in your life where you kind of came back to her and had maybe had more context or uh, a little bit more of like a scaffolding than, you know, when you were five? Yeah. And the thing with her was I, I always kind of liked the way she looked. It was just when she was singing and, and also in motion, because the other thing was the dancing. It was, you know, there was just so much happening. By the time I got to college, she was on the scene again as solo Tina no longer with Ike, my then former husband. And she was making the comeback with the song, What's Love Got to Do With It? And so there was a video that would play on the video TV shows and also on MTV. I liked her (laughs) attitude in the video. I thought the song was okay. I was more of a punk rock kid, but I, I just liked her. I think I've always liked her. And then when I started writing the book, I listened to a lot more of her music much more intensively. And then I was completely won over. I love when the things that kind of scare us or unsettle us as kids become these topics of like fascination. And Keki, how about you? What was your first exposure to Tina? Yeah, um, I grew up in like late 90s, early 2000s. And my dad was always a really big music head. He would listen to anything and everything. Among the jazz or the Afro beats or the classical or whatever he was playing, I feel like Tina was among the voices that were just wafting up from his office (laughs) growing up. It wasn't really until I got a little bit older that I was like, oh, I feel like I know this song. Oh, I've got to know this song. I've got to know this song. 
And um, I would hearken that back to growing up and my dad listening to her. But when I started auditioning for the role in 2018, that's when I feel like I actually developed a really intimate relationship with her music. And usually for auditions, you will listen to the song and learn it or whatever, and then have to perform it. And then you just get it out of your head because you're like, okay, I don't want (laughs) to think about this in case I don't get it. But I was just listening to her everywhere. Every song I was like, oh, I actually really like this song. I really like, like, as if she was some like new pop star. Like that's what she kind of became to me. I love that. When you started that deep research, did you start kind of at the beginning chronologically? Like how did you enter into that that world? Yeah, I feel like I worked backwards. Her, I, I started by doing a lot of watching, watching a lot of her like live concerts. I feel like that's the best way to get someone's sound is like their their live performances as opposed to recorded tracks. So from like the like live in Amsterdam and then like the live in Holland and then the live in Europe and then like working backwards to like the 80s, which you can find on YouTube, like her full concerts when she was doing the Tina tour. And then I started listening to what she did with Ike and a lot of the sounds, the, the recordings of that music, it was all essentially performed live in the studio. So that was kind of similar to how her more recent stuff was kind of getting that live sound. And so that's kind of how I charted my understanding of her music. Maureen, you mentioned kind of seeing Tina in contrast to a lot of other vocal groups that were were popular in the 60s and 70s when you first saw her on TV. What were some of the rules of performance that she stood in contrast to or that she broke as she first started having this initial success in in the late 50s and 60s? In a lot of ways, she's been a rule breaker. She was a teenager who really wanted to sing. She managed to get the attention of Ike Turner back in St. Louis. And at the time, he had the, the hottest band in the city and this hot rock and roll show. And at that time, you know, you always had women singers, but there really was a strong preference for male singers as far as the recording industry was concerned. So even having a woman as the sort of front person of a group was unusual. So that was the first rule that she broke. And if you look at early photographs of Tina in the Ike and Tina Turner Review, she has a very different style. So over time, her visual style changes and it starts to go against those rules of respectability that had Black women performing in sort of fine jewelry and gowns and, and you know elegant looking hairdos. And she goes in the direction of more of the go-go dancer by the end of the 60s, wearing the mini skirts, the very revealing outfits. And then the other thing with her is the movement, is the dancing, which is really integral to her performance. But not everyone was moving around like that. If you think about the ways the Motown dancers were moving, for example, and dance was also very important to those performances, it's a very different kind of movement. It was very self-consciously respectable movements. So the sexuality was really tamped down in those performances. In the Tina Turner performances, the way she and her backing vocal group, the Iquettes, were moving, the sexuality was really ramped up. 
And so she was really pushing against these ideas of respectability that Black women had to adhere to, to kind of get into the public eye, because the general idea was Black women were oversexed and overly sexual, and we, we don't want to see that on our TV screen. So if you want to be on television, you need to pull it back. They went against that. And it was at a time in the late 60s when there was so much opening up in terms of popular culture, especially around sexuality, that they were able to get through. She was breaking rules in the late 60s about the presentation of Black womanhood on stage. You know, another way they stood out was with their hair. For Tina and the Iquettes, they had these sort of long swinging wigs, loose hair. You know, all the other groups, they they were wearing wigs, but their hair really didn't move the way Tina and the Iquettes hair moved. And that was really important to her. She said, I really need, you know, I want to have that movement. And they wore dresses that kind of moved in a similar way to the long hair in a lot of their performances. I looked for videos of Ike and Tina Turner on YouTube and found a bunch of televised performances from the mid-1960s. And what struck me about these videos was the way the audience was screaming for them. You've probably heard about the screaming Beatles girls, but teenage girls screamed out their love for Tina, too, which suggests that the scream of the young rock and roll fan wasn't just about having a crush on the performer necessarily, but about idolizing her, wanting to be like her, getting swept up in the current of her energy. There are men on stage during these performances. They're the ones who play all the non-vocal instruments. But the screams of the audience clearly react to what Tina and the Iquettes are doing. The way they dance and interact with each other, the rise and break of their voices. Even the camera barely seems to acknowledge that there are any men in this world. It stays fixed on Tina and her Iquettes, simulating the gaze of the audience as they watch her unable to look away. And Keki, what was it like to recreate these performances in the show to inhabit that movement in a live setting? Yeah, it's so much fun. One of my favorite things about the show is that it tracks like a 40-year period of her life from when she's like 16-ish to when she's in her early 40s. We really do have that change of starting out and and staying kind of stationary at the mic, having the eye cats close behind, you know, the eye cats are wearing dresses that are actually more similar to what the Supremes would wear, like tight fitted. Very soon after we have, okay, it's no longer the like short coiffed wig. It's like a fringe bang, lots of movement, a fringe dress. Everything just starts moving and changing in a way that's really dynamic because it's like a 20 year period that the first act has to cover. It has to move very quickly, you know? So we have this one number named Higher, which is like one of Ike and Tina's best songs, in my opinion. And it's a montage of late sixties through a majority of the seventies where they're going on tour and she has like two kids in the process of this like five minute song um, and scene. And you really get to learn about their relationship and kind of how their relationship started really sweetly and as brother and sister. And by the end of the number, it's really quite sour. There's, there's a lot of abuse. There's a lot more difficulty and challenge, even though the band itself is becoming more and more successful. You have this this challenge of, of playing a character not only across decades of, of time, but also through these pronounced changes just in 
the circumstances of her life, right? Kind of from these early beginnings all the way through to the the superstardom that she achieved in the 80s. What were some of the performance choices that you made as you played this character across that 30-year period, you know, from, from a teenager to a woman in her mid-40s? The through line throughout the show is the joy that she's always had, that she's always exhibited. That joy is the most tangible or visible when she's like 16. Growing up, she did everything. She had three jobs and everything was really exciting to her. So that's really fun to to start the show with that energy. She had like the gumption to, at the Club Manhattan, to um, ask to sing with Ike. And she she was brave in that way and really bold and brash in that way. And even through the abuse that she experienced, what kept her there was that love of performing and that love of of singing. And when she found her spirituality through that, that was also another really tangible source of joy and ease and, and peace in her life. In her coffee table book, she talks about three rebirths that she has in her life. And that's that's a big one that I always clock in the show when she finds her spirituality. Another of her rebirths is when she actually finally decides to leave Ike. And from there, like that freedom, even in not having enough money to support herself or her family, having to, you know, also be a cleaning woman, taking really small gigs, even through that, like the fact that she was free gave her a lot of joy as well. Maureen, in your book, you have this wonderful analysis of Tina's voice and you quote her a couple of times uh, saying that she doesn't feel that she necessarily has the voice of a woman or a girl and that she personally related to and took influence from the voices of men. And, you know, people have kind of traced the the vocal qualities of singers like Otis Redding through her voice. What qualities in, in the way her voice sounds kind of imparts this androgynous effect, do you think? She says, I don't have a girl's voice. I think she is associating prettiness, clean, sweet quality with a girl's voice. And we know that that's true. That's not how Tina Turner sounds. Now, whether that's, a, you know, whether we can really gender that is another question, because I think she probably would have heard women who had the, the kind of rough, raspy, forceful quality that we hear in her voice. I think she would have heard those kinds of voices in the churches that she attended when she was growing up in Tennessee. But there's still this gendered association of of a kind of prettiness that she says she doesn't really have. Although I think if you listen to a lot of her music, you will hear her singing in a pretty voice sometimes. But what she was really attracted to, I think, is the the power that male singers could bring to their vocal performances. And that's definitely what she brings. And she talks about people like Ray Charles and Sam Cooke as being her main influences. And then Once she's working in the review, much of their show was covers of popular songs. And she does this amazing cover of a James Brown song, Please, Please, Please. And it's just like a all out screaming kind of performance. And it's the kind of thing that she eventually got tired of doing. She said she wanted to be able to sing with a little bit more variety in her vocals. But I think those are the qualities that make her sound a bit androgynous because she's she's not doing the pretty kind of singing. 
And Keki, when you were developing this role, what what techniques and strategies did you use to recreate this voice on stage? Because I imagine it may have required something of a different approach than previous roles that you had taken on. Oh, yeah, big time. One of my favorite ways that I've heard Tina describe her own voice, she says, my voice has no top and no bottom. That just opened up the, the possibility of what could be to me in trying to recreate her voice. Capturing that essence of, of no top and no bottom was really what was, what was fascinating to me. On a technical, I had a lot of learning to do. <laughs> I did not feel like a very strong like rock and roll singer by any means. Especially doing the show in London, I learned a lot by just trying it out before an audience every day and just being like, can I, can I like push a little bit here? Can I push a little bit there? Like, you know, just a lot of listening and a lot of like, okay, I'm going to just try this and see, and see what happens. Uh, And it wasn't until coming to the Broadway company where I was like, okay, I want to have a little bit more of a technical approach because like it has to be sustainable as well. You know, even Tina herself didn't do concerts for two and a half hours, you know, like we do night after night. So that's the big difference. Thankfully, Tina is someone who, since she she moved a lot, she used her legs a lot. And that can be really grounding for the voice, actually. But with your feet firmly planted on the ground and your top of your head to the sky, you can sing high and you can sing low. You can sing with no top and no bottom. Tina's vocal style has this long influence on, on rock and roll as it kind of came to be codified in the 60s. Maureen, in in your book, you specifically talk about how she explicitly influenced performers like Mick Jagger and Steve Marriott as the British invasion really started to take hold in the United States. What did these performers take away from how she was performing at the time? I think Tina Turner, along with a number of other African-American women singers uh, in the late 50s and, and in the early 60s, really had a massive influence on the British invasion because they were great singers. And these white British artists were really swept away by the sound of American music, by the sound of rock and roll. And many of the people at the forefront were African-Americans and it included African-American women. And I think what they were taking was the passion in the vocals, just the energy, the sexuality that was in the voices. It sounded very different from white pop singing. And so there's a kind of earthiness And I think they try to get those sounds into their vocals. People like Mick Jagger or Eric Burden of The Animals. Steve Marriott, first he was in a group called The Small Faces, and then he started in the 70s a group called Humble Pie. He was so influenced by Tina Turner and the sound of the Ike and Tina Turner review that he actually hired a former Iket, Vanetta Fields, to join his backing group and to form a trio of women to sing with his group. He, he wanted that sound. So basically he wanted to have Iquettes. And so I think what the Ike and Tina Turner Review was bringing um, in the 1960s, really, it really caught on. It caught on mostly in terms of sound because I don't think you saw any of the British groups, you know, trying to turn out that dancing. Although Mick Jagger tried and <laughs> Tina try. Turner always sort of gently teases. We tried to teach him and he kind of got it. <laughs> but it, it, it's, it's really the vocal sound. It's the, the, the kind of raspy or throaty quality and it's the passion There's a kind of heat with her performance. And, you know, the other thing, thinking about what makes 
Tina Turner, an androgynous performer in some ways, it's not only that she's not trying to sound pretty, it's that when she's singing, she's not trying to look pretty. And so I think a lot of the the British acts were trying to tap into that kind of emotional energy and passion as it came through their vocal sound. That's a really great point that to kind of present femininity visually, you kind of had to like have the stillness in your face specifically and not really give yourself over to making music that was louder and more expressive because that would make you look in a way that reached outside of the bounds of femininity. Do you think that kind of androgyny as Tina performed it, enabled or loosened um, a space where white male performers like Mick Jagger could kind of pursue androgyny in, in their own way? That's an interesting question. I'm not sure if it's directly related to her because, you know, the other thing with Jagger or someone else who's androgynous in performance is Robert Plant, the lead singer of Led Zeppelin. And the other thing they're doing is they're doing this racial crossing and they're seeing blackness as this as a repository of a certain kind of freedom, especially around sexuality that they didn't enjoy as white men. I think at that time, that's what blackness represented. And so I think they're pushing against the sort of rules of, of whiteness. I think for in England, performing music was not something that heterosexual white men were really supposed to be doing. It wasn't really a masculine pursuit. So it's almost as if they're kind of leaning into doing stuff that's not really masculine. Like, okay, we're going to grow our hair really long, or we're going to wear eyeliner, and we're going to move our bodies in this kind of way. We're going to display our bodies, because that's the other thing that a lot of these guys were doing. They're taking off their shirts. So they're sort of objectifying themselves on stage the way women were expected to objectify themselves on stage. It's not simply Tina Turner. I think it's the times were opening up. These guys were involved in a set of pursuits in a counterculture that was very self-consciously pushing against the mainstream middle-class expectations of whiteness. It really strikes me that Tina Turner appeared on the second ever cover of Rolling Stone magazine in 1967. This was a publication that helped codify rock fandom as a consumer class. It's also partially responsible for creating the image of the rock fan as a straight, white, largely neurotic man who feverishly collects records, like in the 2000 movie High Fidelity. But Turner was there on the cover right at the beginning, not pictured alongside Ike or posing in a publicity still, but performing. There's motion blur all across the cover, hinting at the kinetics of her live show. Turner was clearly important to rock music and its fandom at the time. But when Rolling Stone debuted, her musical career was starting to decline. A year earlier, in 1966, Turner had released the song River Deep, Mountain High, a collaboration with super producer Phil Spector. Ike didn't direct her performance on this track like he had in the past, and you can hear her singing in a new way that deepens and elongates her notes. River Deep Mountain High definitely holds up in 2022. To me, it's one of the most astonishing recordings of the 1960s. But it flopped at the time, failing to land with audiences. They weren't sure what to make of the way it layered Spectre's audibly white production under Turner's audibly black vocal performance. In a largely segregated radio market, the single didn't get picked up in the United States. In Black Diamond Queens, Marine Man quotes Tina's explanation for the song's failure to chart. Tina said, 
It was too black for the pop stations and too pop for the black stations. Nobody gave it a chance. Mann points out that River Deep Mountain High did much better in the United Kingdom, where a bevy of white artists were experimenting with emulating black vocal styles and incorporating black female backup singers into their music. The Rolling Stones heard the song and liked it so much, they invited the Ike and Tina Turner Review to open for them on their 1966 tour through the UK. This trip overseas marked a shift for Tina. As she heard the ways male British artists were injecting Black American R&B and female voices into their music, she in turn started using their music in her own performance. Tina began a cross-gender, cross-racial reclamation of the music that she helped popularize. I wanted to get to the mid-80s where Tina stages this, this comeback album, Private Dancer, that came out in 1984. And she has this kind of unique challenge of re-entering rock and roll, you know, a couple decades after she first helped define the sound of it. Maureen, how do you hear Private Dancer kind of playing against the, the general pop and rock landscape of that era? Well, I think with the album Private Dancer, Tina Turner and her manager, Roger Davies, were just really smart in figuring out what they could offer. If you listen to the whole album, it's hard to put it into a single genre because she's moving across different musical styles. And and this is something that actually the Ike and Tina Turner review always did. And so she just applies that to the mid-1980s. So there are a couple of songs that are like hard rock songs and they're really up tempo and they're 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 like they're great if you want to bang your head you can you can go along and do that like you better be good to me and steal claw but then she has a sort of sophisticated pop sound kind of grown-up pop sound of what's love got to do with it like this kind of world-weary attitude she has a really great video that got a lot of a lot of airplay she has a new look that kind of fits the moment. So she's still sexy, but she's now I think she's cool as opposed to being sexy and hot. And that's something that the market was like, oh, this is different. And, you know, obviously it's also very different. She's over 40 years old and she's doing, you know, pop music. She's starting to take over the charts. That era, there were a lot of different sounds that were popular and she sort of tapped into a little bit of all of them. You've got her covering Al Green and Ann Peebles on that record. So you have the sort of soul sound a little bit, you know, kind of post disco-y in some ways. And then she covers the Beatles and David Bowie. And then the title track, which was not meant to be a single because it's so long. So the song Private Dancer is sort of like this introspective song where she's taking on a character and performing a kind of character, which is something, you know, we hadn't really heard her do quite so much. And um, it was a different kind of performance. So it's a very, it's like, there's a lot of breadth to that album. And you could also think of it as being maybe something for everyone. In both this era of her career and, and earlier, she would perform covers of, of rock groups like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, basically covering white men that were in some sense covering her to begin with, kind of like looping back on on these layers of influence. What sonic qualities do you hear emerging in in these covers? I think you get a woman's perspective and it can make in some ways, the male perspective look a little 
silly or pitiful, depending on your your attitude. And I think that's especially true with their version of Whole Lot of Love by Led Zeppelin. In that song, in the original version, it's like a guy, it's like he's coming on to this woman. I just need a whole lot of love and I'm going to give you every inch of my love and I'm so great and you're going to be so happy. And he, it's a very fast song. And in the Ike and Tina Turner version, they slow everything down. Sounds like they were listening to a lot of Isaac Hayes and then they went and did this kind of Isaac Hayes' funky version. And it's the woman's version. The woman needs some time when there's a whole lot of love involved. And so Tina slows everything down. It's like she's trying to teach the man that this is how you make love to a woman. You don't hurry everything along so you can get to the end. That's my favorite switch that she does. I think what she does with those songs, she's able to get away from a kind of persona that she had to perform in the song when she was doing the songs that Ike was writing that were more like the beleaguered woman who has been done wrong. Her man is mistreating her or leaving her. The subject matter of the songs of these rock songs is very different. So she does, you know, the Beatles come together. She does Led Zeppelin's Whole Lot of Love. I think she had a lot of fun. And I think it was also kind of like, oh, you know, you all are doing R&B in this kind of rock style. So I'm going to do R&B, which I've been doing my whole career in a rock style. And what that did was it opened up their audience from being only, you know, an African-American audience to being the rock audience. So it was really a great strategy for opening up to a broader audience in the late 60s. And Keki, you've been playing the role of Tina Turner for, I think, over three years at this point, you know, starting in London and, and now in New York. You met her. Was that after you had already begun performing her on stage? No, it was a couple weeks before, like maybe two weeks before or so. They flew me out to Switzerland to um, hang out with her in her chateau. It was a very unexpected experience. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking that they would do that. And they were kind of like, you're going to fly to meeting on Thursday. And I was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> what do I wear? <laughs> uh, um, I felt like I, I'd learned everything I could learn in terms of like the book work and the text work and, and reading about her and, and watching the interviews and, and seeing her perform, I felt like I'd gotten everything that anyone could find on Wikipedia or find on the internet, you know, but I didn't feel like I had that through line of how to, how to portray her. I had a lot of information. I didn't feel like I had like the essence of the person. Meeting her was really helpful in that and aligned everything, aligned all the information that I had about her into a person. And just being with her, you really get somebody's energy, somebody's essence, somebody's vibrations just by sitting in a room with them. So I didn't even want to ask about her life much, really. You know, I just wanted to share space with her. And I was really impressed by how she wanted to know so much about me. You know, people asked me like if she uh, told me how to play her <laughs> and things like that. She's not the type of person to do that. She didn't even want this musical to be a thing. She was uh, very uninterested by it. It was her husband, Erwin, that pushed it forth and was like, let's make this your last time telling this story. So she really just wanted to know about me and wanted to know about my background and my life, which is another very telling point about the kind of person that she is. But I do remember there was this one piece of information. I just remember this like two days ago, so I'm really excited to share it. This one piece of information that she gave. I asked her, when you finally decided to leave Ike and 
in What's Love Got to Do With It in the movie as well as in our show. They were about to do a concert in Texas, I think it was, and she runs across a highway to get away from him. And I asked her, what were you thinking in that moment? What went through your head for it to finally be the time where you broke free, where you got away? And she said, I wasn't thinking anything. I was just going. She said, if I, if I ask you to go get the mail, you don't go, oh, I put one foot in front of the other and then I got to put my shoes on. Then I got to get the mailbox key and then I got to put the key in the door. You don't think about all those things. You just go get the mail. And I'm just remembering that she had said that. And I was like, it makes so much sense. She's not, you know, a moody brooder or, or somebody who overthinks things or just, she just, she's a person that just lives in her body and follows her instincts and her gut and her gut really took over in that moment. It's very interesting growing up with a job like this, a role like this, a person like this, because she's someone who has experienced so much adversity. And sometimes I'm like, if Tina Turner can go through everything that she went through and still find the joy and still enjoy her life, like on a, on a much smaller molecular level, I can get through whatever I'm going through. You know what I mean? That's incredible. Tina Turner is, is someone who's had this incredible decades-long career and tons of contemporary artists claim her as an influence, um, obviously with the Broadway production and the recent HBO documentary about her life, she's still very much present in the cultural landscape. And Keki, what do you think are some of the qualities of her work that have allowed it to endure in this way? Tina Turner, the, the person, has such a wonderful ageless quality to her. The fact that she became a rock and roll star at the age of 40 is one of the most like telling examples of that. She's just timeless and ageless and, and endlessly and effortlessly sexy. And so her being herself will continue to endure because of that. And also what she went through, her experience is still very timely. People still go through exactly what she went through and people will still continue to flourish and conquer in the way that she did. And she's such a great example of possibility in that way, which is eternal and endless. Musically, I feel like her music keeps coming back around. I feel like cyclically, kind of like what Maureen said and how her private dancer album had a bit of everything, had something for everybody. That kind of accessibility is exactly what people still want to hear. It's good music. It's catchy music. It's fun to listen to. And when it's coupled with a person who is as excitable and attractive as Tina is, it's something that will continue to live on. Maureen, what do you hear or see in, in the longevity of Tina's work? I guess what we haven't, maybe we haven't said, so we should say it. She's an incredible singer. I mean, she's just so talented. And you listen to all of these songs that she's sung over this really long career, and she just sounds great. So I think that's the other piece of it is she's so talented. She knows what to do with her voice. She knows what the limits of her voice are. We never, we don't hear them. We're not aware of it, but she, like, she knows what she can do and she knows how to do it. She knows how to deliver. She's a total consummate professional. 
She's also a great entertainer. You want to listen to her. You want to watch her. She gets on stage. You don't want to look anywhere else. She has the star quality. She has all of that. And I think it survived all of these years. It's because, you know, it's so powerful because it's a gift that she's honed. You know, she has this gift and then she worked very hard over the years to hone it in a way that, as Nkeki says, makes it accessible to people. There's like this positive energy that she has that you get some of when, you, when you're listening. Definitely. Nkeki, Maureen, thank you both so much for joining me for this conversation today. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. Thank, thank you. you for having me. It's hard to imagine the history of popular music without Tina Turner's influence. From her earliest singles and performances, all the way to the turn of the millennium, her half-century-long career changed the rules of what pop music could sound like. At the end of the Tina Turner chapter in Black Diamond Queens, Marine Mann writes, I view Tina Turner's turn to rock as being a result of her direct engagement with the ways race, gender, power, and access worked in the recording industry. Turner was conscious of the limits and possibilities of her professional terrain and was well aware of the place she was expected to occupy as a black woman. Rich with the knowledge and cultural capital she had amassed over the years, she went in a different direction, deploying musical repertoire, rock and roll discourse, personal connections, and her arresting voice in strategic ways that took her all the way to the top. Turner enacted her turn to global fame in the mid-80s by strategically negotiating her place in pop culture, emulating the rock stars who had been emulating her, sparking new excitement and moving forward while doubling back. Her comeback album, Private Dancer, let her slip between identities, fully aware of the role she was playing without compromising her sincerity as a performer. Turner's influence rings out among artists from Janis Joplin to Beyonce, who have also challenged what it means to be a woman in popular music. And though she retired from performing in 2009, her music still reaches generations of audiences from the bright lights of the Tina Broadway stage. What does Tina Turner's story and voice reveal about the hard genre and identity lines that get implicitly drawn, even in the soft act of listening? And what kind of voice can melt down those lines and return the listener to a state of open awe? Thanks for listening. Want to hear the songs mentioned in this week's episode, plus more of my picks? Search for our official Shattering Gleam playlist on Pandora, or click the link in the show description. You can find Shattering Gleam on the SiriusXM app, Pandora, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like the show, please rate, review, and share so other people can find us. Don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Special thanks to all those who make this podcast a reality. Kelsey Albright, Sarah Bentley... Roger Coletti, Bill Crandall, Jen Derwin, Emily Doherty, Rachel Elias, Sarah Esikoff, Melissa Hicks, Mia Jung, Sade Robinson, Anthony Spera, Mike Spinella, Sam Termine, Chris Watherspoon, Teddy Zambetti, and of course, me, your host, Sasha Geffen. Shattering Gleam is a SiriusXM production. Serious XM Podcasts.